What's good, y'all? Welcome back to Outside the Clutch. This is episode 25. 25 amazing episodes so far. And tonight's with a guy that's really been around me and kind of mentored me from the start in little aspects. Um, definitely in the animal that I probably shouldn't have chosen right away. But, uh, and he warned me about that, but I'm a stubborn person. But um, before we jump into tonight, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's been watching us and really helping this podcast grow. We're actually about 500 hours away from monetizing on our YouTube channel. And then obviously we're plat we're pushing on all uh, podcast platforms, which is amazing. Uh, I, I got really bad and just gave up on YouTube for a while before I started this again and watched it go from like almost monetized to like 200 hours. So we've built that all this year and I'm really proud of it. Um, I'm very thankful to you guys and to uh, everyone that's been a part of this channel since we started doing it as a podcast. Um, I wanted to just say a quick hello to everyone that's jumping in. Lance, I see you, buddy. Glad to have you back. Uh, Genomic Labs, it's been a long time, man. Hope you're doing good. I saw that you just started a little rap business. Well, not little, but a rap business. I'm proud of you, man. Keep doing it. Will's Hella Heat, what's good? Forward Motion, how you doing? Gray Rider Reptiles. All right, so one of the things that uh, I love the most is, the, like I said, was the support that I got from the community when I came back and the support that I get from our sponsors. We have a few sponsors that I'm super proud of. Uh, first sponsor is VivTech Products. As you guys know, we have an affiliate code with them. Uh, VivTech's been doing amazing things to change this industry and to really step up the way we keep our animals, whether it's bags, it's sensors, it's uh, UVA, UVB bulbs, and the things that they're testing out. And they're, they're launching all kinds of new products um every year so it's really amazing to see what ryan and erica are doing over there i'm super happy to be part of that team so if there's anything that piques your interest over there you can use code fclutch0322 and you get 15 percent off site-wide and then our second sponsor is reptichip jt is a fellow veteran just someone that i freaking i fell in love with his personality as soon as i met him uh, I jumped on the Reptichip bandwagon, like the moment I found out. And so I've always pushed it. I've always used it. It's the staple of my collection. Um, regardless of the animal that's in there, there's probably some way that I use Reptichip. If you guys are in the El Paso area, I'm the, now the local representative. So you can come get your blocks directly from me. Or if you are not there and you want to try it out, you can use Feely Chippin for 10% off of two breeder blocks. And as the prices are going up, hey, every little bit helps right now. Um, and then our final sponsor is Show Me Snake Shows. Uh, Mickey's doing some awesome stuff. Dude's a freaking workaholic, man. Um, I, can't, I can't explain how happy I was to have a show come here local to El Paso that I mean, this area hasn't had one in over 10 years. So to see someone give us a chance and to really be pushing it and uh, to be working with him is great. We're going to start going around to some of the other shows that he does as well and uh, just give the love back. And hopefully we're going to see you at those. 
All right. So all our sponsors, make sure you check them out. All their info is in the link down below. Um, tonight we have Mr. Garrett Hartle. Like I said, he's been a huge mentor for me uh, as far as retics. Uh, I don't reach out as often as I probably should, but that's what tonight's for. So we're going to get some knowledge from him. We're going to get some stories from him. We're going to potentially get some philosophy from him. So I hope you guys are ready. And here we go. The man of the hour, Mr. Garrett Hartle. Oh man, we're going on the we're going the stories and philosophy route, huh? Jeez. So, I mean, that's what, what I think you do best, especially Get with the heavy. Little sipping whiskey. <laughs> so I'm curious, what was the thing that you said that I told you not to do, and you did it anyway? I got a mainline retic as one of my first animals. Oh, oh, okay. When I got back in, so like I told Kim, um, that I wanted a retic, and of course Kim pushed me to you. And we talked for probably, probably three days. And I was just like, man, I don't, I don't want a super dwarf. Like I, I understood what you were doing and you were explaining it out. You're like, Hey, you're like, you got to realize the so feed on these the animals and everything else. The <laughs> like, come on, man. That's not what you want to do right now. And, uh, I didn't listen. And then I jumped in like way more and ended up with like seven of them. But I, I realized right away that that was a bad idea. And I did what uh, you advised me to do in the first place. And I vetted a lot of people and found them good homes. And they all seem to be thriving right now. So I'm super happy about that. But um, So you didn't end up keeping them? Do you have any I have of them one. Now? So oh. I, I kept my original mainland. She's still with us. She'll probably forever be with us. Just because but I've had her since essentially out of the egg, I think. So I got her from a local pet store because I, I was that stubborn person that didn't want to listen and was like, I'm going to do it anyways. And then I saw a, uh, she's a platinum tiger and it looked like from beat. what I've realized she freaking, she probably had one meal and they shipped her over to the store and like I dealt with all the baby bites and the super defensiveness and I've got her to where she's a puppy dog now. So I, I don't think I could ever let her go. That's cool. Yeah. No, I uh, I love mainlands. I think people get that wrong sometimes. I think I don't like them or whatever. But there's a, there's like one mainland I think is great. You know, I, you have a great Dane you were talking about. You know, having a mainland is kind of the same thing. Yeah, there's a lot of expenses, stuff like that. If you want to do it, do it, you know. Um, breeding, I think, is a little bit of a different question. I think that sometimes there's too much, just in the reptile world in general, too much pressure to breed everything. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I think people are like, well, I like this as a pet, therefore I should breed it. But we, we need to realize not everybody's going to be like us. You might be, you know, willing and able to keep up with the, with the retics needs, but few people are. I mean, even you, if you got up to seven and had to then quickly go back down to one, you know, you, you kind of realize it. So I love retics. That's kind of why I preach that message because I, you know, I don't want them to have to go through all that. Yeah, so. it's, I mean, I think it's more of, it's more of the mindset that the breeders in the community, because I think when you jump in it, man, that's the first thing you really see. Like you pick up that animal and when you start really pushing <clears throat> in to find that community, you obviously run into the breeders because we're the ones that push everything all the time. Sure. You see all that content. And so the curiosity peaks in breeding and then mm -hmm. they see the money aspect of it. And unfortunately, sometimes people uh, go the wrong way. And 
I think especially with mainlands, man, because there's such a such a variation in the clutch size and the genetics that can be found. Like it's hard to it's hard to uh, kind of hold that market and have people not potentially go crazy in it. Well, it's like, uh, I mean, if, if you wanted to, if you like cats, if you're a cat person and you're breeding house cats, there's all kinds of information for house cats out there. Lots of people want house cats. You know, on the other hand, there's a lot of unwanted house cats too. So right. even there, do it right. Get into a specialty breed that's in high demand, not something that's in all the rescues. Um, but if you're like, I like cats, let's breed tigers. You're in a whole different ball game. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's not that, that I think that anybody keeping or breeding mainland retics is inherently irresponsible, but it's a numbers game. You know, that you're going to have a high, high percentage of likeliness that the animals are not going to end up in good homes. And I, and I say this from experience. I don't, I, I, I say it as a little bit of my own penance. You know what I mean? I've, I've personally sold thousands of mainland retics over the course of my lifetime. And I like, if I had sold a, a mainland when I was a newborn, it should probably still be alive. I'm not all that old yet compared to their lifespan. Um, and I wasn't a newborn, you know what I mean? I was in my twenties and where are all those retics now? I mean, they're, very, very few, maybe 20 of them that I know of that are still alive out of thousands and thousands and thousands. So that's a sad, that's a sad thing for me. You know what I mean? And, and every time I, I uh, call someone, I, cause I'm one of those guys, like I might forget somebody's name, but I, I never forget the snake that I sold that them. Animal. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, Hey, how's that one thing doing? And it's always tragic <laughs> when you, when you hear that it's not around anymore. It's only 10, 10 years later or something, you know? So um, the superdors for me have been much better. Um, I mean, I, my, my superdors that I'm breeding and selling now, I, I see people hatching stuff that are the grandbabies and great, great grandbabies of animals that I've worked with, which is really cool. And, and they're coveted and they're prized and they're held. So, so that's great, you know? Um, and, and even if you do have to rescue them out, you know, if you get a mainland and you need to go find a, a home for it. They're kind of like dogs. It's pretty hard to home a dog. It's very right. easy to find a home for a puppy. Everyone wants a puppy, but not a dog. And ball pythons are a little bit different. Like everyone always has room in their rack for another ball python. It's not that, not that you challenging. Another, you got more room in your rack for like a dozen yeah. baby retics. It's okay. No. <laughs> baby retics. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, anyway, that's where I'm coming from with it. But yeah. yeah. So I wanna say I wanna say it was five years ago, Pomona, mm -hmm. which is going on this weekend. Um we got through with the US ARC auction and we're up and what was it? It was like it was that little room upstairs. It was like a it wasn't a penthouse suite, but it was like the little lounge. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And In I remember the hotel, like across the back parking lot or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we we go and we're all in that little lounge and uh everyone's everyone's uh a little little tipsy having fun and I remember listening to the passion um on locality breeding with you <laughs> and Forrest. 
and it's something that I'll never forget. Um, you guys just going at each other, and it's one of the things I loved about both of you is you're very epic debates, steadfast in yeah. your decisions. But you like what what um pushed you to kind of go after each other's buttons like that sometimes because you've often admitted <laughs> since that you did it on purpose. Oh yeah, um, and that you yeah. don't hate the morphs, even though Forrest said it too. You guys used to fight about that all the time, and I loved it. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. We both did it on purpose because we're both a couple of jagoffs, and it was pretty fun <laughs> to mess with each other. That was, it was really all that it was. And, you know, my thing was like, uh, you know, I kind of grew up with the retics and all that stuff. My first retic, I was 15, and I got a, uh, an imported Jampea, pure Jampea. You know what I mean? So, And that was not – on purpose, I, I was like, ooh, dwarf retic, let's start there. You know, that was kind of my my philosophy on that. Um, but uh, but I, I fell in love with them and I and I've liked them ever since. Forrest, on the other hand, would like read a book and he'd be like, My whole life changed, my whole life changed. Everything I said yesterday, forget about it. I have a new philosophy now. And I was like, dude, you're so full of crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so he was a super, super smart guy. And, and he had, like, there's intelligence and then there's wisdom. And it's not often that somebody has both of those things. But he was one of those guys that he did. He like, so I would say intelligence is like knowing the facts. And wisdom is like seeing where they're applicable to bring about change in your life and society or whatever. And, and he had it. So he would grab facts and he would apply them. He would grab facts and he would apply them, you know? Um, and, you know, and he did everything, but his big thing with me back then, I was just kind of getting started and he was, uh, you know, there's kind of like this stereotype of like a retic bro, you know what I mean? Like I drive my, my jacked up, uh, F two fifty. I have giant retics, you know what I mean? I wear a big gold chain around my neck, tattoo sleeves, all that kind of stuff. I'm a retic bro, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I just, I never really fit that mold necessarily. I, I love all, all my retic bros, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but I just never fit that stereotype. And he's always trying to peg me in there, you know? And it, it just didn't work. So it was kind of fun because he'd be like, yeah, you know, people are always like this. They learn one thing about you, especially if it's something that is um, like a trigger point word or, you know, something that's uh, it, it's like a loaded word. Right. So they say, OK, you keep retics. And then he'd be like, ah, I know everything about you now. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, hey, you're in the military. So I know everything about you. You're a Christian. I know everything about you. You know, wh whatever it is, you know. Um, we, yeah, just society in general, we, we, we overgeneralize everybody. So as he would drive in on the, on the retic bro thing, I think he, he found out that, that we were a lot alike in a lot of ways. And then what was funny is like, so like locality stuff, he's totally into that. In fact, I have a pair, like they were the pair of pure Kalatoas that I could never get that he actually went out and bought for me from, um, it was actually Dan Maleri who wouldn't give them to me, you know, but Forrest talked him out of them and he just sent them directly to me. He's like, these are better off in your hands than mine. Um, and I've started a bloodline with those now, but so he was really into that stuff, but
But as soon as he would drive in and, and get there to where we agreed on something, he would go read a book or go to a seminar or something so that he could totally change his mind and come back and argue with me some more. So, yeah, I don't know. It was just a relationship we had. It was really fun. Uh, both of us, too, were like super thick skinned and stuff. And so I think you have to be in this industry, too, though. Like, Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like any drama between us wasn't real drama because here's what I loved about Forrest that I miss about most of the reptile industry. You can argue until the sun comes up with somebody and have a really good time if you know that they love you and they have your back. And so Forrest and I, we were like that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, other people, you say one thing in disagreement to them. And unfortunately, I, I find the majority of people are like this. They're like, oh, we can't be friends. In fact, we have to be enemies online now and, you know, keyboard warrior at each other and stuff like that. I'm not going to call you, but I'm going to call you out on my social media, you know, stuff like that. Because you have a, a certain point of disagreement between whatever it is, your philosophies, this, that, or the other. And, and it's so silly, you know. It's like, uh, I don't know, Forrest and I, we agreed on fewer things than we disagreed on. We mostly disagreed on everything. And, oh, man, he would get me so worked up, I'd scream it. Like, he'd collect all these rare reptiles, and then his thing towards the end there was like, yeah, I'm not into captive propagation anymore. I'm more into, like, scientific literature. So I think I'm going to pickle all my specimens and donate them to science. And I was like, you bastard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... You can't do that. I just fell in love with all these crazy abronia that you brought in. Now you're going to throw them all into it. And obviously he didn't do it. And, and that was the thing is like, I don't think he ever would have done it. He's just saying it to piss me off and, and hit that trigger point. Like yeah, you're talking he's about. You. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And he totally, he totally could, but yeah, we absolutely, it, absolutely loved each other. Um, you know, in fact, I still, I mean, it's, Superdorf projects take a lot of patience, but one of the things that we're doing with the the bloodline of animals that I started with the animals that he got to me is running it as like that particular project as almost like a nonprofit and right. uh, sending all the the uh, proceeds to we we set up a a uh, trust for his son, you know, like a college fund or whatever for him. So. So that'd be kind of cool. So, you know, his dad's legacy and, and everything can live on a little bit through that. So, I mean, that, that just goes to show like how much we really did care about each other. And, and that's a great thing about the reptile industry too. We've all seen it. I see it most often at us arc auctions when somebody's down or has a problem. We've, there's been a lot of times where somebody has had, we were talking about like uh, JT had his fire, um, you know, chase, with his battle with cancer over at uh, Kabilka and all that stuff. Um, you know, people step up at those things to help each other out. And, and I love that, you know, and uh, I just don't know why we can't, I would love it if our industry could express that on social media and online. No, I think you know? that's, that's the hardest challenge for not even the content creators at this point. Like that's the hardest challenge in the industry is, like <clears throat> when when we see that there's trouble everyone wants to come together for it right mm -hmm. which is great i love the industry for that but when there's not trouble we're gonna go almost like it gets thrown <laughs> to the wayside right yeah and i think that's the hardest challenge is finding a way to get these 
breeders that are consistently breeding or uh, even the people coming in. Like one of the things that we did here locally, um, we all talked about US Arc at the show. Like if you were going to buy an animal, we talked to you about US Arc first, which probably pushed some sales away because people were like, oh, you're talking litigation to us first thing. Like, uh, uh, uh. but that's the way it happens sometimes. But we, we got people to not only join us arc but understand and understand hey there's like it this isn't just a bring in your pet this is something you need to care about um and the breeders more so because you're literally basing your future off of this right but there's times where you don't exactly want to fight for it or you don't want to support it and um it's it's a hard thing to do because you you see the ups and downs i think uh i've been around the industry for five years now and there's been i want to say two or three major attacks nationwide obviously we have our state alerts and stuff like that that pop up constantly but um there's been two or three attacks in the last five years nationwide where it, it really could have shut down the industry as a whole so well, the most recent one just happened this month <laughs> beginning of this month you know they tried to push through those Lacey Act amendments with the Competes Act, which is thankfully now dead, you know. But, um, yeah, people don't really – I think people all think like, okay, U.S. Arc is kind of like our little reptile government, and they're going to fight for us. And uh, I don't know how you feel about it. You're down there in Texas, so if I wanted to overgeneralize you, I could probably guess. But, uh, you know, letting the government fight all your battles for you doesn't always end up the way that you would want, you know, and, and so us arc is not really designed to do that. You know, I, I keep telling people since we started that us arc YouTube channel, I was like, you know, you need to think of it not as like a government that you pay your taxes. Here's my $5 benefit, you know, whatever membership to us arc. So they're going to protect my rights in the reptile industry. It's not like that. Uh, U.S. Arc would be more like Paul Revere, you know what I mean? Riding right. through town saying, hey, the British are coming, the Redcoats are coming, you know? And it's time for everybody to take up arms and, and go to it. And that's what we need to be doing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fun, to, whether it's in business, with breeding, challenges, even calculating different more for locality crosses. You know, if you really want to impact the future, I think... Uh, the way to approach it is with that from that knowledge and wisdom aspect, like we were talking about the forest had nailed. But I think the thing with like US Arc, for example, would be how do we get massive amounts of people to know it? So some of US Arc's, you know, kind of competition or, or enemies would be, um, you know, like Humane Society of US, uh, HSUS, they're terrible, PETA, awful organization you know even if you love animals which obviously we do they're they're terrible organizations um and the way that they get everybody aware uh of their of what they're doing is run super bowl ads and things like that they reach out to people where it's like hey do you like dogs do you like cats you should donate to hsus you know and they they do that kind of stuff um you were talking about hitting people up at the reptile shows if you're selling online, those are people that are at least somewhat educated because they're going, they know where to go to find reptiles. They're going to breeders and stuff like that. But when you go to a reptile show, a lot of times people just go there with their kids to have right. a good time, you know? 
And so they, they may end up walking out with a reptile that they never planned to get. So that's a great outreach to the general public that is interested in reptiles. And some of the things I've seen breeders do that work really well is they're like, okay, how do I get like new people engaged? Obviously you don't want to turn them off by being like, Hey, you know, join the NRA, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. uh, you know, they're like, what, what are you even talking? They have no idea that, that there's any opposition to a reptile hobby or, or people who want to make an approved list of pets Americans are allowed to have. They, that sounds crazy to them. And they don't even, they're even aware of it, but what they would do is say, Hey, by the way, you know, this, this hundred dollar animal that you're buying or whatever comes with a free $5 membership to us arc. I buy one for you when you buy the animal, you know, and, and I sign you up and they just get the pe person's name and email or contact information. Like you would probably when you're selling them an animal anyway, so that you can follow up and make sure the animal's doing all right. And, uh, print out a little business card or put a us arc sticker in there or something like that. And then they, out of the hundred bucks, they take the $5, you know, and they go to us arc, they sign that person up for a membership, put their email in there. Obviously you're talking to them when they do this, but they don't even have to be, you know, just say, I'm going to sign you up for this thing. It's really cool. It's free, you know, free membership. I'm paying for it for you. And they're buying their first year membership for free. Now all of a sudden they're getting alerts, you know, they're being, they're being educated and hopefully they're finding ways that they can connect. Like that's why we started the YouTube channel. Um, I think people are more likely to search their news or find a source of information on YouTube than they are to be able to find usart.org. Um, and go to a website and read through lists and lists because U.S. Arc is and Phil and those guys are like so busy trying to keep everybody updated on everything from state, local, and federal levels um, that it can get lost. But if you have a YouTube video on it, searchable, you can kind of follow along with it and everything like that. So those are those are good ways to get people's foot in the door. You know, you don't have to have them be a hardcore. <laughs> you know, uh, lobbyist right in the beginning, but just having them get their foot in the door and raise their state of awareness. Um, uh, I like where that. to start. Yeah. I like that mentality more than, uh, well, I'm not going to say more than what we did, but you're right. It's, it for sure could be overbearing. And yeah. I, I didn't even really think about that. I was just like, you gotta get, gotta get it out there. Right. And that's how I knew how to do it. Well, yeah, that's great too. Like I'm saying, like, I mean, that's just, that's just one idea. Like all of us have our different areas of influence in the world. So you're going to know how to connect with your community better than I would, because I mean, if they liked me better, they'd be my community, not yours. You know what I'm saying? So we all need to be putting it out there however we can. But I think the idea of trying to look at it from that person's perspective, like, you know, just say I'm a, a dad here on the weekend with a son who's been looking at leopard geckos or ball pythons online, and maybe we'll go to a reptile show and find one. What's the appropriate amount of information for me to be able to digest, to apply to my life about, you know, a, a political organization like that? Okay. So, yeah, but anyway. Let's... um Let's jump a little bit back in to you. Obviously, USR is super important uh, with 
Garrett running the channel right now, it, it's something that's heavy on his heart, something that stays heavy on my heart, and we we really try to push. Um, if you would like more, you, both US Arc and US Arc Florida's links are down below, so make sure you check those out. Uh, consider becoming a member, and obviously take some education from it, like Garrett was saying. Um, go subscribe. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel. You know, like again, easy way to get news. Just scrolling through your feed. Oh, what's USR up to? So I, I didn't know that you actually said at 15 you got your first dwarf, and you were already mm -hmm. focused at that age on locality specific. By default, you know, it was kind of <laughs> that was all there. There weren't morphs in dwarf or anything like it was too new, right? So, right. Yeah. Okay. So, what what took you from? Okay, Garrett's fifteen years old. I want my first retic. I get this dwarf. To, this isn't going to come out right, no matter how I say it. Expanding into <laughs> what going to work at prehistoric and working with just a huge store and a huge breeding project to traveling the world and seeing places where retics come from to what you've become with super dwarfs. Completely, story? completely isolated events. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, I actually knew Jay. Uh, he's not who I got my jamp from, but um, so I knew Jay at prehistoric even back then. I don't think he remembers knowing me, but I bred leopard geckos from 14 to 16, like commercially with an emphasis on, on making money with it. And that was with the blizzard lizard project. So I bought my first $5,000 leopard gecko from him when I was 14. Um, Cause I was just enthralled by reptiles. But back then breeding was not a, you know, really was not a thing that it wasn't anything like today where it's like, I have one, so I should have two, so I should breed them. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, it was, it was more like, Oh, I'd like to have one of everything, you know? And so we would just go around and collect stuff. And most of those species, like if you went to a reptile show, there were a handful of captive bred animals, but by and large, they were colubrids. There'd be a couple of pythons. Ball pythons were, you know, kind of entering the scene, but it was like albino and genetic stripe, you know, the codom stuff wasn't there. So if you went to a reptile show, there wasn't like ball pythons on tables and things like that. Um, you know, it was more like, it's just kind of like the classically bred stuff would be like green trees or carpet pythons, uh, like the, the uh, um, jungle carpets and stuff like that. Um, a lot of boas and then colubrids. So anyway, I was just keeping, I bred the leopard geckos. They were fun. My grandfather uh, helped me buy the $5,000 one and he made me write like a business plan and everything and figure out how I was going to pay him back. And then that's freaking would, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He was the one that left me the tools in the snake discovery build last year or whatever. So he wasn't a reptile enthusiast, but he was a, a Garrett enthusiast, you know? And so whatever I was into, he was really pushing me and and would help me out with that but he was also pretty smart with his money and and he was very stingy too and so he'd be like yeah i'll give you this but you're gonna pay me back with interest on time and everything else and you're gonna pay me first before everything else and so if your lizards need crickets you better get me my payment 
because their crickets come after me, you know, or whatever. So, so he kept me accountable to all that kind of stuff. I had to, to track all that and everything. And that was sort of the start of the commercial breeding, but uh, it was just cereal collecting. I, I never bred that jam. Um, I, I circle back around to them later and stuff like that, but I would buy, sell, trade things. I just kept hundreds and hundreds. Like when I was in high school, I remember I, I stopped and counted one time and there was like over 400 reptiles in the bedroom that I was in, in my mom's house, who by the way, hated reptiles. Like I actually built my bedroom out of a garage, kind of like what I'm sitting in right now, actually. Um, cause they had like a bigger garage than they needed. Their house had like a four car garage. So I was like, I'll just put a little wall up and live over here. And they were like, fine with that. Cause then I was out of the main house. Out of sight, out of mine. <laughs> all my jungle. Yeah. And her, her, uh, her thing on it was like, if I ever find one of your snakes, I'm going to cut its head off with a shovel. I don't care how much you paid for it or how much you love it. So you better keep them in their cages, you know? So anyway, yeah, it was just serial collecting of reptiles, which I did up until I was like probably about 20 years old. Um, and I had moved back in those days, kids, we moved out at 18 where we started paying rent. And so I was like, I ain't going to pay rent to you. If I'm going to pay rent, I'm going to pay rent and get my own place. So I did that. What are you laughing about, John? The 18. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I, I was out at like 16 living in a car, and then my mom was nice enough to say, See? You've seen what a struggle is. You want to you wanna figure it out and have a little help again? <laughs> Good for you, home. man. See, that was let me come back proud home, of back I tried to get emancipated when I was 16, but my parents worked me worked around it. I was like, I can do it. They're like, shut up, sit down. Two years, buddy. So anyway, no, I'm, I graduated in June or whatever it was. I was out in July, you know? So, um, but yeah, I got, I got my own house. I filled it up with reptiles and guitars and dumb stuff that you buy when you're 18 and making money. And so that's what I did. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like when I was 20, I had probably the big kickstart in my little adventure series in life was that my house burned down and all the reptiles, everything died, everything I had died. Um, and that was it. And so all I had left was literally, um, I don't know how much you really want to get into it, but I had a, a Bible that was left, which I named old Smokey. Cause when you flip the pages, it smelled like the fire of hell. And, uh, and my pickup truck was a, a Toyota pickup truck. And so um, I put a camper shell in the pickup truck and I got a cigar box. I was, uh, I was living at a campground. I used to do outdoor science education for kids at that time. And so um, they passed the hats around when, I mean, they were there, like the house was at the campground. So it was like this huge event. I got medevac to the hospital, helicoptered out of there and all that kind of stuff for smoke inhalation because we're an hour away from everything. So I, put most of the fire out myself, beat myself up doing that. Um, anyway, they passed the hat around, gave me some cash. Uh, one of my buddies thought it was weird that I didn't have any animals. He wasn't an animal guy though. So he did the, um, the old, uh, he bought me like a Tweety Bird canary cage and put two mice in it and hung those in my truck. So I had two mice. One was named Azusa, one was named Sister Cat. And off I went and I lived in the back of the truck for a year and a half driving around the country 
just to just to kind of like have an adventure, not because I had to or anything like that. But I was just like, well, that part is gone. I'd literally never been at a point in my life where I didn't have animals that I wasn't responsible for, which, as you know, like pets are great, but you can't like reptiles are easier than other pets. Like I can fill some waters and leave for the week or whatever and come back. But you can't you can't go away away. Right. So, yeah, so I drove around for a year and a half. I'd run out of gas. I'd pick up a like odd job, manual labor type of thing, work up some gas money, food money, meet, you know, eat in strangers' houses that were kind and did the whole thing for a while, which was pretty cool. And I was like, I'm into this. I'm, I'm down. This is fun. Um, and right when I got comfortable with that, um, a buddy had come out because he was jealous of my lifestyle. So one of my old friends from high school, came out probably the only friend I still keep in contact with and he drove with me for a couple of months and um and he ended up totaling the truck while I was asleep one time we were driving shifts and he totaled it so that was the end of that lifestyle um and all I did John was like whatever I had in front of me I would just go do it and be like let's see what happens you know and so that's, what what I had had super some, resilient man I'm just gonna say that right now like that's I, I didn't want to go to college, so <laughs> <laughs> figured I'll see. That's what one else. way. That's one way. <laughs> I figured I'm like hey, you got to oh, do something man. else. No, you know, honestly, the um, if you want to get a, a little heavy with it, I think the the my perspective on life was that at one point I hated it. In in uh, and I've talked about this before, but in high school and and thereafter, I I really struggled with depression. Uh, attempted suicide, stuff like that, just didn't want to live anymore, you know? And, and I had a little bit of a perspective change on that, which was great, but it doesn't make you, I mean, I, I had been trying to kill myself all along. So like that whole life preservation, self-preservation instinct that most people had, I've been working on burying that and killing that within myself for years already. And so I was on a little bit of a journey just to see how much I could handle. Right. You know, like, okay, you know, I'm not, not afraid to die. So maybe that's kind of knowledge and, and wisdom there, there that if you, if you truly weren't afraid to die, um, you could probably do some interesting things that other people aren't willing to do. Right. And, and that's how I got myself into <clears throat> these situations. I was just willing to do stuff that other people weren't because I didn't care what happened. I didn't care. I was never afraid of rejection or failure, you know, no self-preservation. So yeah. So I would just do stuff, but yeah. So from the, from the car wreck, um, when I did wreck, I had one of those, uh, travel vouchers. Some, I don't remember how I picked it up, but like free flight kind of a thing. So I was in Pennsylvania when we totaled the truck, um, central Pennsylvania, we made my way here out Western Pennsylvania PA to Pittsburgh, where a lot of my family's from and uh, decided to go to Jamaica, which I'd been a couple of times before. And so I cashed in my ticket for that. I got there, I got deported. So that didn't work. They sent me back and uh, cause I didn't have any money. And they just basically told me we don't need American homeless people here. We have plenty of homeless people of our own. They'll be home. Being yeah. a tourist and spending all your money. Mm -hmm. If you don't have money to spend here, we don't want you. So I got deported, um, came back, was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then 
weirdly got a letter from an old friend of mine. He was actually like um, my youth pastor in high school. And he moved to Indonesia as a missionary, which was always a country that I was enthralled with because that's where all the retics come from and pretty much everything else cool that's in the industry, right? With it, aside from a couple of Central, South American, and African species, a lot of it comes from, from Indonesia. So, um, yeah, he wrote me up a thing. He said that his brother and his wife and kid were German and they were moving, they had moved to Indonesia and their kid was attending like an international school in high school. That was the best education he could get rather than going with the locals. But none of them spoke any English and they were like literally in the middle of nowhere. So we're not talking about like Jakarta or something like I was in a city in um, East Java called Malang. It's at the foot of a volcano. Um, and so I went there and lived with that family. He wrote me a letter being like, hey, they need somebody to teach them English and help their kid, you know, like understand his homework. He'd taken like the equivalent of like a year's, you know, like how we all took Spanish in high school. Right. He took a year of English in high school. So just kind of like knew a few words, but he was falling behind. So how, how was it trying to even do that? Like, that was weird. Yeah. Like I, I was living with a family in a country and no one spoke English. They so, just kind of hand you stuff and you hope that you earn. Like, I could do his homework. How did that work? <laughs> I was great yeah. at with his homework. That was really the only good English I had. Yeah. The, the, the whole English-speaking community in that city was like 10 people. And we would get together at a Wendy's every now and then um, just to hear other people speak English. And most of them were Australian. I think there was like one other American for like six months while I was there. The rest were Australian. But no, I, I just helped the kid with his homework and spoke English with them. You know what I used to do was watch a lot of movies with them because they were all in English and then dubbed. And so I could explain the movies he could read in, in German you know, the subtitles and stuff like that. And then I would explain the cultural side of what's happening. And I ended up picking up a job with a university there teaching cross-cultural communications so that I could get a visa and stay. So I lived there for a long time. Um, what until... was it kind of like being there, man? Like, I, I know we, we kind of hinted at it before the show and I, I know you have your past things, but like just being in being surrounded in the culture and being potentially having the ability to hurt and like do all the things that you love and are oh, very avid about here in the States, but doing it in the origin of everything that you love. It's heaven on earth. It's heaven on earth. If you, if you have got, it's not even that hard. People talk about like, Oh, this is a bucket list thing or whatever. Just buy a ticket and go, you know, I mean, I moved there. When I was there, like, I, I never wear anything other than blue jeans, like, my whole life. I just swim in blue jeans, herp in blue jeans. I don't know why. That just kind of happened. It's kinda, probably because I grew up sort of cowboy or whatever. So um, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to find good blue jeans when I moved there. So I bought, like, 30 pair of jeans, stuffed them in a duffel bag, and moved to Indonesia. And I was like, I could, I'm sure I could buy shirts and stuff like that or, you know what I mean? And even if I have to go without a shirt, I don't care. I'm fine wearing like the little rice. I'm not going without my Levi's though. But I need, yeah, but I need my, I need my jeans. So <laughs> yeah. So I, I packed up a bunch of pair of blue jeans and I just went and it was fine. It was great. Um, yeah, it was, it was very cool. I got sick a lot. I was very just young and stupid and irresponsible. 
So I got, I got typhoid fever. I got malaria while I was there. Um, you know, really abused myself doing everything and anything and just having a blast. And, and so it was really cool. It was a very weird experience, not hearing your own language for months on end, you know, like it was, I remember I was trying very hard to learn Indonesian. Um, Indonesia is an interesting country. They have 350, over 350 languages there. Um, but there is a main language and the main language is not even really Indonesian. It's Malaysian. So Bahasa Indonesia or Bahasa Malaysia is what they call it. So Bahasa Malaysia is the na the root language. And then Bahasa Indonesia is like you're speaking Malaysian, but with like a farmer's accent. So that's what I learned, like the farmer's accent. Like I'll speak to Malaysian people today and they laugh at me and stuff. So, but, um, awesome, that, that's yeah, I remember like dreaming in Indonesian and not understanding. I'm like, it sounds good. I think it's correct. I just don't know what they're saying, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a trip. It's a lot like the middle East, man. They, uh, so they have, they have about five different dialects. Um, most of the places that Americans are going to go in the middle East, right? And if you're a soldier, you only learn one. And the words that you learn in that one may be construed as not just slang, but kind of a curse towards okay. them in other dialects. So you have to be very careful and figure out what dialect that they're going to speak to you first. So you kind of, we were taught when I went through uh, Arabic class, you let them speak first. That way you can pick it up. And if there's a terp there, let them do it before you have to actually blurt something out. Yeah. You don't know what you're going to do and you're going to like throw an insult or something, trying to explain something. Yeah. But, uh, That's actually, I taught cross-cultural communications. I'll, I'll give you a two minute lesson real quick. Humor is the hardest thing. Humor <laughs> is very hard across cultures. I mean, even, even within America, you know, like my wife's family, they don't get my humor. They, they don't like that at all. I piss, <laughs> I piss them all off all the time. So uh, when you're in another country, that's the same thing. Um, but I'll translate uh, some of my favorite Indonesian jokes for you. Their favorite jokes to tell are the jokes where the Indonesian guy went to America and then kind of messed up the dialect or didn't understand quite what they were saying and made a fool of himself. And they think it's so funny. So like one joke is like they get in an accident. The American guys is like, what the hell are you doing, dude? And the Indonesian guys like, I'm sorry, I hit the brakes, but they didn't eat because in Indonesia, like, you know, the brakes engaging and eat or like the brakes didn't bite is kind of, it's almost right. a halfway thing. So they think it's so funny. I'm like, oh, this is so funny. He's such an idiot. The best joke was like the Indonesian that bumps into the guy on the subway and in Indonesia, they'll never be outdone in humility, right? Or, or being apologetic. And so um, the Indonesian guy bumps into the, the New York guy who turns around, you know, ready for a fight. And the Indonesian guy goes, I'm so sorry. You know, and that kind of diffuses the New Yorker. And he goes, I'm sorry, too. The Indonesian not wanting to be outdone says, I'm sorry, three. Now the <laughs> New Yorker is confusing us. Wait, what are you sorry for? I'm sorry, five. And he goes, man, you're sick. I'm sorry, seven. That was that was the only like semi funny Indonesian joke I heard while I was there. So, but yeah, cultural stuff, man. You gotta, you have to. It, it's very interesting when you actually live somewhere. It's not like 
studying the culture from the outside um, because a lot of things that don't make sense, like your Americanized common sense doesn't apply there because there's different set of cultural rules. Everything's flip-flopped. So you, it makes sense only within the context of the entire culture. And that, I think that's one of the hardest things that, unless you're a world traveler, um, us as Americans, it's one of the hardest things for us to understand is like, we, we always hold on to the American culture wherever we go. Like I remember my first six months of my nine months over there were probably the hardest thing, just watching the way that they interact and they talk to each other and uh, like how, how they treat their families and stuff like that. And you don't think about it. Right. Like, but that's, that's the norm there. And you have to yeah, and it, it works in context of the entire culture. You take one practice out and you're like, wow, that's dirty, filthy, or whatever, but you're you're putting one practice into your American context. You you can't do that. We also think we're immune, like we don't see when other people do it. We all think we don't have a culture or something. Like I remember a typical thing with Americans when we look at people who immigrate, come to our country and live here. We're always like, look at them and they're like, why do they have little communities and not learn to speak English and not, you know, so like in LA, they have Chinatown, for example, you know, Chinese restaurants, they all speaking Chinese, a lot of all traditional Chinese architecture and stuff. And it's like, why don't they, you know, if you're going to come to America, you better learn to be American. But then whenever you are an American, like go, go look at American in, in Paris or something, they hate us. We're all loud in the restaurants and rude to everybody. And they're like, hey, you know, nobody says, why don't you be French? They just hate you. They're just like, I hate you because you are American. You can never change. I understand that. <laughs> but we don't see that we do the same things that we think are crazy in other people. You know what I'm saying? So Right, right. I get it, man. I get it. It's... <sighs> yeah. Subsex, uh, subsex off. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, I was. I'll make the last couple connections for you real quick. So I was in Indonesia until that tsunami happened. That right. wiped me out. Couldn't stay anymore. Came back to the U.S. Um, broke my back. I, I went to manage a horse ranch after that. Broke my back. I got kicked in the stomach by a horse, um, and so had to learn how to walk and everything for better part of a year. And that was in the LA area. And I had a lot of time on my hands while I was doing that. So I would go hang out at prehistoric pets for funsies. And I would just try, you know, I was there all day. So I tried to make myself useful. And so I would volunteer to, you know, sweep or mop floors or I'd help customers pick good animals and things like that. Ended up with a job there um, because of that. So, and then worked there for three years. Um, couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> it was, uh, is, you know, Jay is a, um, a visionary guy. He's very, he's crazy. He's changing. I mean, I can't believe how he's blown up on social media, but he's changed the reptile industry many times over, over the years. And I think when you have somebody that's that dedicated to somebody, they're, they're difficult to be around. You know, you hear the right. same thing from people who know Elon Musk or whoever. Um, and so he's like that. So, um, I love the guy, but, uh, had to get out of there. And so always wanted to come back to Pennsylvania. By this time I was married, had two daughters, didn't want them growing up in Orange County, California. So where would be a good place to raise kids? Pittsburgh's gotta be the best. 
So ended up with a job back After here. Country, it's always better. That's it. And if the Pittsburghers, they all say we have like a boomerang effect where you like go out and you're like, I'm going to try life somewhere else. And you're like, nah, I'm going to go back. So I guess I did that because I was born here. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then as Pittsburgh people do, uh, got a job in the steel industry for a few years. And, and then my wife was like, and then I kind of built up my reptile collection again in this basement room. And then my wife was actually the one that was like, you know, you've always made money for other people with reptiles. You know how to do it. Why don't you do it for yourself? You know? So she pushed me into it and ended up here. So like you said, just random isolated events, just doing stuff. So it's freaking awesome, man. Uh, how do you, or what was kind of your mindset when you decided I want to go from what I've known into, I'm going to do this for myself and I'm going to focus specifically on super dwarfs at the start. Um, so the big thing was like, I, I knew that turning a reptile keeping hobby into a business was going to be difficult when you stop making your paycheck. Right. That's, that's hard. It's scary. That's the number one reason why most people don't do it. I think if more people weren't afraid of that, more people would actually have thriving and successful reptile businesses because the numbers generally work. Um, it's just scary. So I kind of figured it would fail. But being, I was mostly worried about, you know, take care of my wife and kids. I don't right. care what happens to me. So I was like, well, if my wife is pushing for it, you know, might as well. And if I'm going to do it, I know it's going to be hard anyways, probably going to fail. I always called it the grand experiment. Let's see if I could actually like pay the bills with reptiles, you know? And so if the experiment was going to fail and I'm going to be okay with that, I might as well do it with something I like. I wasn't dumb about it. I knew that super dwarves are like, they're literally like the perfect intermediate level pet, right? I wouldn't say they're the best beginner snake. You know, I got the African house snakes for that now or whatever, but, <laughs> but intermediate sna snake, if you've had reptiles of any kind um, and they have a little bit of everything for everybody, like, there's the cool connection with the wild side, which to me is the locality projects. There's the morph projects. I mean, they're, they're morphs. We don't have the same numbers as ball pythons, but looks wise, we rival ball pythons in a lot of ways exceed them. I think there are a lot of prettier retic morphs than there are ball python morphs, uh, which is kind of cheating. say that. Uh, I don't think well, you're the stretching there. Are, I think. Yeah, the, the wild types are a thousand times above to begin with. You know what I'm saying? So it's... Easy that the morph would look good, um, and that's not a dog on ball pythons. It's just retics right. are one of the prettiest snakes out there. Um, so yeah, and they're the right size. They're that kind of snake. It's like it's got a little bit of oomph to it, but it's not too big. I mean, and and the size is selectable. So a lot of times people don't realize how small like a really good bloodline superdwarf is. I mean, the the goal for us is females that live and breed under three thousand grams. You know, so when we do morph projects, that's what we do. We have a bunch of them that are that size. You know, that's those are pure super dwarf sizes. They lay our smallest female is uh, uh, 1325 grams when she laid. 
Um, so she's pretty tiny girl. That's small for a ball yeah, python, yeah. you know. You've taken it down to basically ball python size. Yeah, well, they, they're, they're as small or smaller than ball pythons in the wild. You know, they're longer but leaner. So it's like right. they're more like a bull snake or something like that. That's the size of them. So if you can get the morphs down to a 3,000 gram snake or whatever, that's a good size snake for most people. And in a retic, that lengthwise, that that equates to like a seven and a half, eight foot snake, you know, um, where it might be a four and a half foot snake and a ball python just because of the right. difference in girth. So, yeah. So, um, so that was kind of fun. I knew all the elements were there. And and then I, I had my hostile takeover plan, which was pretty fun. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times people's plan is like, I'm going to buy an albino and a stripe and I'm going to breed them together and get double heads and then raise them up and they make albino stripes. And that's my plan for success or whatever. But that takes a long time. takes a lot of money. You know, I, I had a, I had a, an evil hostile takeover the super dwarf market plan and it worked. And that was my big gamble. That was my, it was about a $30,000 gamble. I scraped together $30,000, um, between personal savings uh, an aunt and uncle who thought it would be cool, believed in me, all that kind of stuff. And the same sort of thing with my grandpa when I was a kid. Like, okay, I got to make it work. If I was 14 and could do five grand. I should be able to do 30 grand as a 35-year-old or however old it was. So, um, yeah, and and it did. But well, that, it was pretty, pretty fun. That came a lot from uh, not just what you put into it and your takeover, but the your mentality on building your circle around you and those breeding loans that you did which i remember mm -hmm. like right when you started um really coming forward with your youtube channel and i think even before that we had talked about it a little bit and you're like you're very adamant about how you should approach breeding loans and things like that um yeah do you think that can or how the how do I want to put this? Maybe I can talk one day. Um, how do you think that contributed to your success? And what are what are some takeaways for like those new people that are looking to really make a name for themselves? Because obviously, when you're first coming up, you may not have that full investment, right? Or you hmm. might not have that the ability to really invest in a multitude of high dollar animals. So you have to work those breeder loans kind of to create a name in essence. I, I, you might be um, confusing what I did a little, I do some breeder loan stuff. Um, I would say the basic philosophy uh, in general, I would discourage especially newer people from getting into breeder loans because they're sticky situations. They usually end up going about the way of a, of a divorce for those who have been through one of those. So if you like going through divorces, do breeder loans with people. That's a great way to, you know, cause that drama. Um, what I was doing instead was, um, was, I mean, the idea is you want to understand what you're good at, what you have to, and what I mean you're good at, if the, the basics to being successful is have a solution for something. If you're just throwing like there's a lot of ball pythons being sold out there, for example, and a lot of really good ball pythons. If you're just putting more ball pythons out there for sale, you're not really a solution for anybody. And 
right from that, if that's your mentality going in, you're not going to be successful. That's kind of like uh, opening a coffee shop that's like a couple degrees below a Starbucks. If Starbucks are on every corner and you're going to open a coffee shop, in my mind, you should be like, what does Starbucks fail at that I can bring to the table? Most people try to imitate Starbucks, the successful coffee chain, by having that little like cafe, free Wi-Fi vibe, things like that. And they're like Starbucks. They're just not quite Starbucks. And generally, like the quality is a little bit inconsistent or the hours aren't as long or as conducive to people hanging out. The spaces are smaller because rent is expensive. And, the, and it's just and the coffee is just as expensive, if not more. Right. So you really have to do something different than the establishment if you want to if you want to do that, what is your solution? For me, my solution um, for people who were breeding, the people always focus in the beginning when they're breeding, they're like, okay, what morph should I buy? What project should I get into? Which one's going to bring me money? Those are all the wrong questions. That's not even the hard part. Get a couple of reptiles, rub them together, get some babies. That's the easy part. If you know how to take care of reptiles, especially if you're talking about commonly kept reptiles, you can do that with a half sheet, a half sheet page care sheet. You know what I mean? Um, that's not challenging. The challenging thing is going to be converting your product, taking your product to market, converting snakes into cash. And I'm gonna, you know, it's, it sounds not nice to think of like animals as a commodity, but we're talking about it from the context of I want to have a business doing what I love. Then you need to think of it that way. Um, and so that's the challenging part. And most people don't think about that. Uh, the funny thing that I find in the reptile industry, most people get into reptiles because they don't like people. They're like kind of, there's this little alternative introverted, you know, I, I'm maybe a little bit of a nerd kind of socially awkward, but my pets all try to bite me every time I talk to them anyway. And for some reason I find solace in that. If you're that kind of person, you're probably not wired for retail. So converting your product to market is going to be your greatest challenge. My customers that were buying the super doors, obviously I'm biased or whatever, but they bought from me. So they have great bloodlines. They're making awesome animals. Every bit as good as mine or better. You know what I mean? Maybe they have a unique blend to it or something, but they're probably not going to be very good at taking their product to market. So my best customers would come to me and they'd say, Hey, listen, I want to start this business. You know I mean? My, mine was 30 grand and I'll tell you how I did my hostile takeover because it, it wasn't breeder loans to get ahead. Not at all. Okay. Uh, my breeder loans came more in the form of like, I was already breeding. I made snakes. I sold them to people. When they grew them up, they hatched babies that they didn't know what to do with. And because I know all the history on the bloodlines, because they bought specifically from me, I felt very comfortable selling those animals for them and doing like either wholesale or consignment type of a deal. And that's more the form of my breeding loans. A lot of these guys became my friends. They had lots of space as I would retire breeder females. I would retire them in their direction. So they're now making money off of animals that I grew and everything. But I didn't create any competition for myself in that because all their babies are still coming back to me to sell. And so what, 
what I knew that my solution for the industry was is um, is basically building reach out reptiles. I don't think of it as like Garrett's Exotics or anything. It's a platform for educating people about super dwarfs. Uh, you know, creating a, a very educated buyer. We get into a lot of technicalities. People really pay attention to husbandry requirements, bloodlines, the things like that that are going to make them be successful and know what they have and cherish it long term. Uh, so that's been the basis of everything that I that I've built with that platform. And then outsourcing the breeding to where I have a. I mean, John. You should come over sometime. I have a lot of animals right now. We've been um, talking about this for a long time. I'm, I know. So I, I put it out there yesterday, and I'm going to make you hold me accountable to this. Um, that you're coming out now. Here, sorry. I am going to make you hold me accountable to this. I'm coming to Reed's Hick Fest next year, no matter what. Sounds um, good to me. We talked about it this year. So when you, when you held your first annual, I was like, oh, that's freaking amazing like i would love to do that and you're like well you should come up you have an open invite anytime you want i talk to my wife about it and just like everything else in life we don't stay on top of it right and it kind of falls yeah. to the wayside a little bit yeah and uh stay tuned for up. the date and get your tickets early yeah. on that's why i was like just send me the date so i could block it out now <laughs> yeah we just had a two week two weekends ago it was epic you were talking about your sponsor VivTech. ryan mcveigh came out as a speaker we had four speakers revolving around, you know, how to um, grow, innovate, and change within the industry for the better. And so I basically got a speaker who is, you know, I, I looked at the, the reptile industry kind of as a human. And I was like, okay, who's going to make the body better, the mind, the spirit, and the soul? And if that doesn't make sense, stay tuned on Reach Out Reptiles because we're going to have an episode about that talking about what we did with the speakers but yeah it was great and and he really brought it so he's he's an awesome guy but um yeah that's what i did for breeder loans i i realized that other people can make just as good as snakes as me especially if they're buying snakes from me right so why you know too too many people get competitive they'll either put that person down or those snakes down and it's gross and it's hypocritical and it doesn't make sense anyways because Truly those, I mean, if you buy good bloodlines, you have good animals. It doesn't matter if you're a scumbag or not, you know. Um, it might be harder for beginners to trust you when they buy stuff because they don't know who's willing to misrepresent the animals or lie to them to make a quick buck. But they know they can trust us. And so I am very careful to protect my, my customers and my community's trust that when I say they're getting something, they're getting what I say that it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for that. But as long as people are operating within those bloodlines, they can do it. And then we make it really easy for them to find good homes for their animals. And think about this, John. I mean, so many people in the reptile industry, are they try to make a business that's beginning to end. They're like, I have the animals. I breed the animals. I sell the animals. I retail those animals. I market those animals. I do the customer service for those animals. You know what I'm saying? And then I have to compete against people who are actually successful in breeding my animals. Like you have a unique project. It's only unique until you sell it to someone and they make a million of them. And they try to do it beginning to end. And they try to do that from a hobby level where they still have another full-time job working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. That's insanity. If you find yourself doing that, just quit. Stop. You're doing it wrong. You need to go throw it out. Go back to the drawing board. Figure out what you're good at. And what I've allowed people to do is 
instead of investing $100,000, let's say someone's like, I want a business, it's $100,000. That might sound like a lot of money, but if you were going to open a pizza shop or something, it's what you're looking at, you know what I mean? So they want to do it with snakes they, and uh, they try to do it beginning to end. And so out of that budget, if you're lucky, 15, 20% of that budget should really be your livestock, right? Which in that case, I, you know, I picked the number because it was easy with maths, 15, $20,000 with, with like high end, even ball pythons, 15, $20,000. That doesn't get you too far. One, maybe. It's like 1.4 snakes. Yeah. There you go. You got well, one little. If you're talking high end, I mean, there's, there's stuff that's coming out now where you're looking at minimum 10 to $15,000 for an individual male. Doesn't get you that far. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's the problem. So it's like, how about I take care of everything for you except baby production? Now you can literally, out of that $100,000, you, you need maybe $10,000 in cages. And then you can afford to buy $90,000 worth of snakes. And I will take care of the rest. And we do it in a, in a mutually beneficial way. The, the people that work with me in that regard, and I, mean, I, I have rules about it and everything. It's not, I'm giving you the very simplified version, but they're only working with my bloodlines. I help them put together their projects. It's like, these are the animals that the market and I need more of. If you're willing to produce those, I'll sell them for you, you know? And so people end up, you know, investing, they can invest their full budget or close to it in the animals and their husbandry. And if you think about it, that's really fun because what, uh, what a lot of us that get into reptiles, we do it because it makes us feel good. And what's the way of keeping reptiles that makes you feel the best? Forget about the politics of like tubs versus cages or this or that or whatever. You get to if watch doing, your animal and interact with them. That's the best that's part exactly about it. Exactly it. So you can build your dream enclosures and have your dream animals and just play with them all the time. And then the way our thing works out is that, you know, you hatch some snakes, you go, wow, you get that whole experience of being a breeder and hatching that stuff. You pick out the babies that you like, you put the rest in a box, and then you get paychecks in the mail. You know what I mean? So it's like it cuts out all the part. So, so that's, what, that's my solution is that what if I do all the hard part for you because I have a staff of 10 people that are well-trained in these, this niche, and we do it better than anybody, and I'll give you full access to them so you can oh. just enjoy your animals. You know what I mean? And, and obviously for us, the thing that is, is like more of that investment is coming to us so that I can build that platform and pay those people and, and do all those kinds of things. And so by working it that way, we've been able to build rapidly because it's, it's been um, less than five years since I quit my job. And I've got a staff, 10 employees, 6,500 square foot facility, you know, like a three-story commercial building with... I think our, our last count, it's a little bit less now, but last count was like last month, we had like 700 snakes um, all, you know. So in five years, starting from 30 grand, yeah, that's awesome. it's crazy, you know. And some of our snakes are like, you know, now they're worth like $70,000 each, you know, that kind of stuff. We got quite a few of those. So it, it, it was a rapid buildup, but it was because we were able to offer a great solution that was a huge problem to a lot of people. VivTech again is like that. Ship your reptiles is a company that's like that. You know, what's a what's something that people struggle with that we can make easy? Morph market, 
is literally the marketing tool, marketing tool of the reptile industry now, you know, and that's how most hobbyist breeders are converting animals to cash so that they can keep keeping the animals that they love the way they love them. So there are a few businesses that do that kind of stuff really well. I wanted to be one of those kinds of businesses, not just a breeder. You know, I mean, we do that, but that's honestly kind of like the hobby fun side of our business. It's the background of our YouTube videos. But any financial success we have is as a problem solver for the community. What do you think? Um, what do you, or where did you pull your inspiration for like your, the way you not only market, but like the way you present your animals? Um, I don't know that. I don't know if everyone's seen your like your Tinley or uh, I want to say it's Schomburg, right? That you go to mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, your booth setups at those, as well as like your presentation when you ship out an animal, is like yeah, unboxing top tier. Like I, I love watching people unbox from you, just because all the intricacies that you have. It's it's something that you don't see in the industry. And what, what was kind of your mentality on that before you pushed it all out? Well, again, I think if someone was like, okay, let's go ship a snake, they're, they're typically going to say, how do other people ship snakes? And they're going to ship snakes like that. And that's fine. You actually do need to do that to gain a little bit of experience. But um, I think it comes from being able to, you know, come back to the knowledge versus wisdom thing. You have to be able to ask the right questions. Right. So just like if you're getting into breeding, what morphs should I get? That's not the right question, even though that's the number one question everybody asks when they're getting into it. Um, you know, with presentation of the animals, the question that I wanted to answer. And again, I told you this. The reason I got into super dwarves is to literally sorry, mainland guys, but pull some of the attention, uh, you know, of other people in the market into retics without having to get a mainland, right. you know? Um, I would say we probably don't steal any sales from the mainland market. There's the people who are like, I want the biggest snake. They're clearly not looking to us. But everybody who's like, I love retics for other reasons than their size. I love their intelligence, their coloration, the interactivity, the fact they never get sick, always eat, all those kinds of things. Like, you know what I'm saying? The people that like those things about them, um, usually the size is a hindrance. So we got into superdogs. Uh, with the presentation of it, I know that if people buy an animal from me, um, they have to value it if that animal is going to be well cared for. And for me personally, it's a huge priority. I mean, these babies, these snakes are like my babies and I want them to have good lives forever. I don't want to do the like when I said I sold thousands of retics and few of them are, you know, survived those mainlands, that was eye opening to me. It took me a while. I'd already sold thousands of them before I came to the realization of like, you know what? People had, all have good intentions, but they don't, they're not as dedicated and follow through as I am. And the animals are suffering because of it. Um, and so, you know, even if you're selling a ball python, for example, something that you may cherish you know, as like, let's say you go buy one of these $10,000 males that you're talking about, you're in love with it. 
you remember when, um, well, you probably don't because you got in a little after this or whatever, but when the banana ball pythons came out, people love to use them as an example of an animal who's super high and then crashed in market really fast. So uh, the pity is the animal, whether it's a normal, a banana or anything else, it's a, it's a living, breathing being that deserves our care and respect. But if you paid $15,000 for it, and then six months later, someone tells you it's worth $500, like with the banana ball pythons, you might actually come to resent that animal. And so ball pythons that are like worthless morphs end up in rescues constantly. So I said, okay. pseudo rescues. Right, all right. Yeah, flippers. Um. So my thing was, I don't want to do that. I still live and operate in that same world. Morphs change prices, projects, you know, are cool today, less cool tomorrow. There's trends in the industry, all that kind of stuff. But what I was like is, like, how, how do I, how do I make it to where, if someone is going through a life changing event, let's say they're getting a divorce and they got to get rid of everything, the one thing they're gonna keep, like, okay, sell the Corvette get rid of the house, you know, uh, scrap the old hot rod project and, and, and pawn the boat. But I got to keep my recharge reptiles keep the super dwarf because it's special. So the presentation of the animal is my last, I, I do YouTube videos where people, that's usually the first place they see me and I tell them how special an animal is. And then in the sales process, I talk to them, I, they realize how special the animal is. A lot of our animals, not all of them, but a lot of them, you have to wait to get. You know, if you come tell me, like one of our, as far as I'm concerned, one of my chief projects is like pure locality carampas. But if you came to me today and said, I want one, I'll say it's probably going to be like two years before you can get one. But I will put you on the list. And I will call you someday. Just be ready, you know. And so by the time you've gone through that process and you get that carampa, it's probably the most painstaking achievement that you've ever had. It will be the most special thing that you've ever bought. Not the most expensive, but the most special. And I want to go out with a bang. So there's one more thing. Let's say you're picking the animal up at the show or you're receiving a box. And the box is even, I think, more important than the show. Because at the show, you can still meet me, talk to me. You can see how much I love the animal in my eyes, you know, right. as you're getting it. And so you're going to get that. But if you've only ever seen me on YouTube or maybe talk to me through email or phone call before you get your animal, then when you get my box, it's the first time that you will engage all of your senses in experiencing a reach out reptiles animal. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can smell it, you know. And so you pick that thing up and then there's already an excitement around the box because you pick it up at FedEx and it says live reptile. And they're like, whoa, what's this? And you're like, yeah. And this little story that exchanges as you're opening the box. And then when you pull it out. The presentation is like, I mean, I don't know. I was just drinking, um, you know, a bottle of whiskey here. You can go buy an $80 bottle of whiskey and they have $35 worth of beautiful packaging on it, you know? why do we brag in the reptile industry that we can ship a snake for $2.50, you know, in packaging? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm going to put some of the money from the sale of the snake into that experience so that 
the first time you get it, it doesn't matter if it's a $500 snake, a $5,000 snake, you're going to know with every, you know, sense that your body has that this is something special. This is something to be cherished. And, and I'll tell you, reach out reptiles, super doors do not get secondhand traded very often. And when they do, they're bought like that. They're the easiest reptile to find a home for because people want them so badly, you know, and when they get them, they hoard them, you know? <laughs> and so that's great. And even the way that we work with people as a part of that process, it's like financially, the, the one universal, unfortunately, the universal language we all understand is money. Right. So if I can make you money while you take good care of my babies, I'll do it. And then you'll take good care of my babies. So there's a sentimental value. There's a, a material value to the animals. And that ensures that the animals will always be cherished. So that's, that's where it comes from. As far as the inspiration of where I got it, anywhere. Where's something special? What do you like unboxing? Maybe an iPhone would be Apple is the classic for like unboxing experiences, you know. Um, we don't ship in a snake bag that looks like a dirty sock. You know, we put them in this like clear window tin. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, uh, it's almost like a jewelry box or something when you open it. Um, you know, yeah, it's all, it's all different. We're, we're constantly improving that process. You know, our boxes are not the standard shipping reptile boxes. We make sure that they meet and exceed all shipping criteria as far as like crush tests and stuff like that. But they're more like, you know, the little hipster uh, kit in a box you get sent every month or whatever, and you pick out your special items and send back the Your ones you don't want. Subscription box, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we did it more like a subscription box or something like that. So, you, you know, the idea is not to copy someone else. It's to find what you really enjoy and bring it to the world. Um, if you can figure out how to do that, then I think people will connect with you as a breeder and, and, you know, earn return service and all that stuff. I always, I don't even know how I would put it, but I, I always kind of said, it's kind of like a, like a country chic or like a rustic chic. Yeah. Like my wife says, on over there. so the, the term is like shabby chic. My wife's like, eh, it's not quite shabby chic. It's more like crappy chic. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks good in the background, you know, like this is our wash station for the old reptile room or whatever. But like, then when you actually look at it, you're like, Oh, this is actually like pallet wood stuck together with uh, chewing gum. Huh, Garrett? You know? And so that's, that's the way we do it. Crappy chic, baby. <laughs> cheaper, better, faster, cheaper, better, faster. Go, 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 go. You know? And, it works. and, the, and it works. again, it's like, I want to spend my money where I like spending it. I want to buy a more expensive snake and offer cooler stuff. So, so do I care where I wash the dishes? Nah. <laughs> That's awesome. Man. Um, so with being a man of faith and this, this is going to be a little off subject, but I told you I wanted to touch this because this is something that, a lot of people kind of have an issue with, or not okay. necessarily an issue, but they have a hard time expressing themselves or their beliefs in this industry, obviously, because it's, uh, it's a very strong, um, strong belief system, either one side or the other. How have you found it to express your beliefs and what are, what's kind of some ways you would say 
to help those other believers um, feel more comfortable in the industry trying to express what their belief is? Hmm. Uh, well, I think um, for me, my approach has always been like different. I try to find the good in everything. And so, and I've never ascribed to like one particular lifestyle or anything. So even when I was in high school, like I was in theater production, mm -hmm. but then, so I was like one of those guys, but then I also played football, which is like those guys used to all fight and beat each other up. And I was friends with all of them, you know, um, you know, I did well in school. I got good grades and, and things like that. But then I also like just ditched and took every shortcut and went on every vacation that I could. So I, I was just, uh, you know, grabbing life and taking it by the horns. I think probably what, what you're referring to as far as these two microcosms is that inherently we work within animals that are a part of the natural world. Mm -hmm. And the method that we learn more about them is, is the scientific method. And so you have a very science-based community when you come to people who are interested in animals and natural history. And, um, and science has also been historically used to like explain away the existence of spirituality. And so you get these kind of two factions, you know, some people are spiritual and, and the, the kind of belief that people have or that overgeneralization, like we we're talking about earlier of them is that they're stupid or they're just emotionally led and they don't use their brains. They make decisions based in the heart. Um, and then you have on the other side, uh, these very, very scientifically minded people and the overgeneralization about them would be that they're a bunch of eggheads, you know what I'm saying? And they, they don't understand like the beauty of things. They can't appreciate that kind of stuff. And, and so they miss out on the spirituality. I've definitely existed in both worlds. Um, I'm a very practical person, you know, the things I enjoy they're just always practical. You know, it's funny, like uh, just one example is I just bought a new shop vehicle. Um, it's called a Ford Maverick. It's this new little mini truck thing. And That's, everybody, um, what's like that? one of the new electrical ones or is no, that? No, the, the base model is a hybrid. I have a turbo version of it or whatever, but it's like a, it's like a SUV with a back cut off. So it looks like a pickup truck basically. So everybody's like, that's not a real truck or whatever, but it fits every use case that I have. I need to carry, you know, more stuff than I can fit in the trunk of a car constantly. And, uh, but I still want good mileage. So it's very practical. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the toy poodle of the truck world, um, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it works for me. So I'm always driving like minivans and things like that and everything. But even with that, my wife was telling me, she's like, is this the first new vehicle you've ever bought? And I'm kind of like a car guy. Like I've got a Harley out there. I've got a 69 Chevy pickup. And, um, and so I, I love cars. I enjoy cars. Um, and I'm like, no, that can't be. I've had dozens and dozens of cars throughout my life. And then I'm thinking about it and I'm like, nope, she's right. That's the first new car I've ever bought. And so um, anyway, that is just to go to show that even when I have the money, if the used car is more practical, I'm taking it. So when it comes to spirituality and all that kind of stuff, um, I, I love to fill my head with all the information and the study and the deep dives. I mean, we just got through doing a series on my channel. We did like a four part series breaking down the first scientific paper, uh, from 2002. That was the first one to mention dwarf retics in scientific literature. 
It was all about Jampea and Slayer Island. And so we did a four-part series on it. It's a super egg-heady thing. And even then, I'm trying to bring a little bit of like comedy and application and practical wisdom to the series so that people can enjoy and understand and maybe learn a few things about reptiles on the way. Um, but my faith has always been the same way. Um, it, it's always had to be, it, it's very a practical thing. Uh, I mean, I told you I struggled with suicide and depression and stuff like that as a teenager. And me getting serious about my faith was really the kind of the perspective that I change that I needed. And I, I guess I think about things in a weird way or whatever, but um, I think a lot of people that aren't Christians think of it all as a bunch of like fairy tales about, you know, some gray haired guy, like might as well be Marvel comic universe. You know what I'm saying? Uh, thing like that or whatever, but I'm, I'm not one to like, I don't play video games. I don't read fantasy books. You know what I'm saying? I, I love dinosaurs until I realize they're all extinct. And I'm like, well, that's not practical. I guess I'll get into reptiles. So, um, you know, if it's, if it's not there for me to experience, I don't care to like waste my time dreaming about it. I'd rather dream about something that I can then apply that knowledge and experience in my life. And so for me, my faith has always been very practical, you know, and, um, and it's, I, yeah, I take God at his word. I try him out. I test him in a lot, you know, especially going through the different lifestyle and stuff that I've had. And I've seen him showing up many times when I need him in, you know, inexplicable and, and undeniable ways. And so my faith has just been very like, God says, he'll do this. So boom, here I go. You know what I mean? And he isn't yet to fail me in it. So that's, that's where all that comes from. But I do understand where it comes from because like I said, you have these very like scientific based mindset of people. And unfortunately, there's almost like a, a political divide between the two sides. Like who says you can't love science and art? Why are those mutually exclusive? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, if, if anything, science brings art alive and art brings science alive. You know, you can be as scientific as you want, but if you're boring when you talk, nobody cares. You dedicated your life to the study of some mollusk, and I just don't even care. You know what I mean? It's like when you die, we'll just burn all the textbooks you wrote. Good, good job, buddy. You know, but if you can bring that alive, even if it's like through, you know, it's an oceanic mollusk that they made a whole episode on Octonauts about, and kids got to learn about it. You know, at least now you've actually. I love that you brought that up, dude. I, I love that you brought that up. I'm just saying, like, it's got to go somewhere. You have yeah. to have an ability to communicate to an audience. If you can't do that, you, you won't be successful, you know? And so, I don't know. I think, uh, I think as, a, as a grown man, from a logical standpoint, it's very, very hard to deny that there's a spiritual side of life, you know? And I, I think most people do believe this. They just have a harder time with the fact that there's an authoritative God or an ultimate truth or something, mostly because we don't like to change, right? Like, I'm living my life. Who are you, God, who I can't even see to tell me how to do that? Get out of here. But, um, but I think most of us will acknowledge some sort of spirituality. You know, it's always, it's always made me laugh when, you know, atheists, like, get into uh, meditation or, uh, you know, they don't like realize what it healing is. crystal powers and things like that. Well, I mean, it's spiritual by nature. You know what I'm saying? But it doesn't involve like an almighty God. You know what I'm saying? 
So I guess they're okay with it. And I'm like, you're not really atheist. You're just not you thinking this through. <laughs> you're just not thinking this through. And, and there's a, there's undeniably like a spirit and a soul to us as beings. And, you know, like I said, even with the reptile industry, when I'm like, I want to grow and care for that, for that reptile industry, I kind of divided into like, you know, body, mind, spirit, and soul, you know, it's kind of how humans are made up. You can be the smartest person in the world and the healthiest person in the world, but literally be like dead on the inside. Trust me, I know I've been through that before. If you're not taking care of your spiritual self. So denying that is ignorant in, from my perspective. Um, and that sounds harsh, but I'm talking to my past self. You know, it's something that I've, I've come to terms with and I've, I've dealt and I've learned from, and I'm, you know, all too happy. Those of us who are learning something should turn around and help the guy behind us. Right. You know, that's why I never criticize like people on the internet, you know, people always joke around like, well, I bought my first leopard gecko and now I'm telling everybody how to keep a, keep reptiles or something like that. It's, it's true. You not. might be, there's a process cause you need to go through some humility and realize you ain't all that in a bag of chips. But the truth is you're just excited about this new information that you've learned and applied in your life. And you're bringing enjoyment from a leopard gecko and you're excited to share that information that you just learned with somebody else. And so, you know, from, from somebody who has like, you know, really had those kind of internal mental uh, struggles and spiritual struggles and stuff like that growing up and everything and, and been able to, to come up with my solution to it. Um, yeah, I'm all, I'm all too happy to share. You want to hear my recipe for uh, conquering depression and suicide? That'd probably be good. I don't know if you have any listeners that are struggling with Absolutely. that right now. Yeah. So I was depressed. I, I was masochistic. I like to cut myself. I'm friend of pain. I think that stuff is fun kind of anyways. And it was, somehow temporarily soothing to me to cause pain to my body. So when you do that, people see it. I had teachers that were concerned and people like that. And the first thing that they would do when they find out that you're mentally struggling like that is say, oh, honey, you're such a good person. You deserve better. Don't do that to yourself. What a shame. And it makes you feel worse. And the reason why is because you believe what they're saying. You're like, yeah, I am a good person. I do believe better. How come the world is against me? Why do all the bad things happen to me? Woe is me. I'm good and I deserve more and I don't have it. So I'm going to be sad and depressed. Not everyone's the same, but that was my mentality as I was going through it. So then anything that would happen, like the girl I had a crush on would get a different boyfriend or something like that would just send me off into this spiral of depression because it wasn't never really about the girl or anything about that. It was, it was like me and life should be better. And why is it so hard? I'm a good person. I deserve, uh, you know, I don't deserve this pain and misery. Why do I get it? And, and, and from that perspective, God seemed kind of cruel. You know, why do you like watching people suffer? That doesn't make any sense. So it tied into that. Then I thought about it. I kind of thought it through. And I, this is for me, it was more of an analogy than anything else. But you know, the, the, biblical story of the beginning of mankind is Adam and Eve, right? God makes Adam and Eve, gives them life, and, and off goes the human race. Well, if you think about that, and the way I thought about it was this, Adam was made from what? What did God made Adam out of? From dirt. Yeah, from dirt, right? So he took dirt and he made Adam, 
And then Eve was made from Adam, who was made from dirt. And so you have this husband and wife team who bred, whose children's inbred and inbred and inbred again for a thousand generations. And the result is me. So if you took dirt and inbred it for a thousand generations, you end up with me. So outside of God and any kind of spiritual purpose that I was ordained or given, I am a thousand generations of inbred dirt in my natural state. If that's the case, who am I to think I deserve any good thing? That's gross and pathetic. And so strangely enough, the solution for my depression was not to tell me that I'm a good person. It was to tell me that I'm inbred dirt and no better than that. Disgusting, nasty. Every decision I'd ever made was to self-soothe. And it was very selfish. You know, it's funny that people who hate themselves and people who love themselves are both very self-absorbed. Even though they're coming at it from two ends of, of the spectrum. If you hate yourself, I'm here to tell you I love you very much and you are self-absorbed inbred dirt. You need to get over it, which is not what people want to hear. They always, oh, don't tell me to get over it. You, you need to get over yourself and you need to go start helping other people. Because my favorite Bible verse, um, I actually wood burned it in the little snake discovery thing I gave to Adam Wickens. Uh, it's uh, Proverbs 3.5. You know, it says, uh, basically, I, this is a, a paraphrase, but it says, I woke up this morning because God sustained me, kind of like he woke me up and gave me life today. So every day I wake up, it's hard. I don't like to wake up. I would rather not wake up because life is difficult. But he woke me up, so he has a reason for me. and He is God, and from his perspective, I'm like a little ant. But he loves me. Like my daughter has this little baby manted it's like a half an inch long and she loves that little booger you know what i mean she goes out in the yard and like taps flowers to catch bugs for it every day and stuff like that sprays water on it loves it and she has a purpose and a design for its life that's kind of how god sees us she sets up this elaborate little world for it to live in and enjoy and the only thing it could do wrong it could bite her it could you know what i mean or pinch her or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And she wouldn't mind because it's a praying mantis. That's what it's supposed to do. You know, you can cry out to God and tell him how you really feel and be authentic about it. But the only thing that would make her sad was if he did something to harm or kill himself. Because she doesn't want to do that. So it's kind of like if you have a, like with retics, you know, if they push their face in the corner of the cage, it drives me insane. If your ball python goes on a hunger strike, you're like, bah! that's so much more frustrating than a ball python that doesn't actually like you. You know, I can get along with a ball python that doesn't like me and acts defensive all the time, but I do not get along with my ball python that goes on a hunger strike, you know. And that's what we do. We, we, you know, we piss God off because we don't like ourselves. And he's like, you're inbred dirt, but I've called you some, to something greater, higher, and I woke you up to go find out what that is today. So stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get up. I have promised good to all of those who love me. So just say thank you. Like I tell my children, you don't have to know why I'm telling you to do what you do. You have to say, yes, dad, and you have to go do it sometimes. And that's a hard lesson. And we still have to learn it today. Yes, dad, I'm here. I'm awake. Life is hard, but I will do it. And throughout the day, if you can learn to view the world through a healthy spiritual set of eyes, you will begin to see the beauty, small little bits at first, and then better and better and better. And then you will come to realize that it's not that you're a good person who all these bad and you know curses happen to, whatever kind of thing. 
It's that you are inbred dirt and you have a tremendous amount of blessings considering that you're only inbred dirt, inbred dirt, you know, and you woke up for some reason today. I don't know why you don't know why, but you can go find out and it'd be kind of cool. You know, like today I took my kids to the Creek. We had a little adventure and there was a bunch of high school kids and there was a water snake running through the Creek and the high school kids were like, ah, and they ran out of the water and my 11 year old daughter dove on it and caught it and it bit her four times. And then she handed it to my son and he's eight and it bit him once. And he's like, look how cute it's little mouth is. And then they ended up showing it to the high school people who thought we were insane, but laughed and videotaped them. Couldn't believe it. Then they be became subscribers on our YouTube channel. And, and we taught them that this is a Northern water snake. They're harmless. And so this is kind of fun. We do this all the time. We let it go. They watch, they filmed it crawl off and had a new appreciation for animals. I didn't know that was going to happen when I woke up today, but it was kind of cool. I see the beauty of it. It was a really pretty water snake. It has reddish bands. So who knows? You might find, meet a water snake with reddish bands tomorrow, you know? So just the thing is you have to, you have to stop paying attention to yourself. For me, it was like, I hate Garrett. The, the moment of like uh, salvation for me to use a, a you know, uh, what industry term? in Christianity or whatever, was basically being dead to myself. They, they say, dead to yourself and alive in Christ. Now, Christ gives you this world, this burden, this purpose, right? That's Jesus loves you, and he wants you to do that. He died to bring, you know, so your sins don't count against you and bring you closer to God, just so that you can be a cool little praying mantis in a, in a little cage, you know, just so that you can enjoy your life and be connected with God. And so dead to myself, alive in him, to me means that um, everything I always decided to do in the past when I was depressed and stuff was uh, resulted in things that I hated. I hated myself. I hated my life. So everything I felt like I wanted to do, I was like, you know what? Garrett sucks. He can't even make a good decision in life. I'm not going to listen to Garrett anymore. I'm going to, every time Garrett's voice, my own voice, is in my head. I'm going to say, shut up. F you. I hate you. Get out of here. And I'm going to go try to learn a Bible scripture about what I should do in this circumstance. And I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to test God. I'm going to say, okay, God, I feel like I should do it this way, but you're saying that way. Here I am doing it. Let's see how this goes. And it always resulted in some awesome adventure, life lesson, things like that. And so I just, I just built on a large number of small stories of that happening throughout life to get to where I am today. So otherwise I'd have been dead when I was like 16. So I, yeah. I think we all have, we all have that in us. The issue is like people get comfortable and they're like, well, I, I know it. And even in this industry, right? Like we get lackluster in what we're doing because we know the scripture or we know the care of this animal, but we get lazy or lackadaisical or however you want to put it. And we just rely on that and versus always trying to improve, trying to innovate, trying to make our walk better, trying to find a way to better incorporate what we're doing within our life. Um, it's hard to sometimes for people to pull it all together. I know it's been a huge struggle of mine. It's something that me and my wife talk about a lot is uh so i was i was super super spiritual as a kid and my walk is shaky at best 
I'll say that. I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, I still have my beliefs. I still follow my walk. But it's it's not what it was at one point. And now I'm working back towards that. But a lot of things happened in that time. And I, I had my mistrust. And I gave up. Um, you had to come back from that. But um, I, I don't know. I think one of the things I've learned, and regardless of who I'm listening to or what I'm doing in life, is of taking... My wife wrote this quote that the more you know the more you know how much there is to know. Mm, yeah. And so it always needs to be a continuous focus on bettering yourself, bettering your walk, bettering what you're doing in life. Um, not necessarily saying like monetarily you're animal wise or just finding a way to be a better person in general. Well, and it does apply to the way I it applies to everything in life. Right. right. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, you know, and I would say that people that are struggling with it, just push harder, go farther. You know, I, the way I liken, um, like if, if you want to say like, okay, I believe in God. He's like this fairy tale thing, but somehow it's supposed to make my life better. I don't know. For me, that's the, the idea of that's not very attractive. Um, I want God to have yeah. some cool effect on my life. I want to feel and experience it. Kind of like, I love that I can like sit down with a reptile and look into the eyes of this vastly unrelated creature and and relate to it Excellent. learn from it you know what i mean have have a uh, a bonding moment with something that most other people think doesn't even deserve to live after they've seen it you know it's like a snake an alligator things like that i love that and so that's a, a life-giving experience for me and so that's kind of what i want you know from god i want him to have some sort of a of a power. So if you're, if you're in this position where you're like, ah, it's shaky and it's not good, you're probably being too normal and you need to shake things up a bit. I, you know, where I was talking about my inspiration in the reptile industry. Um, my dad was, I'd said, I'm not like into fantasy stuff, but at the same time, um, I am definitely into storytelling and I take a lot of inspiration from stories. So my dad was like a comic book artist growing up and I already mentioned the Marvel comic universe once in this talk or whatever, but, um, you know, watching, uh, like reading Spider-Man comics and stuff. I always related to him cause he was like this dumb kid that messed up all the time, but he had superpowers. So he wasn't like Superman who was like perfect. He right. was very, very imperfect, made a lot of bad decisions. And yet he had these superpowers. So the way I think that, you know, living a good spiritual life is like, is first, you know, having that foundation in something in God and Jesus that is there for you. He's on your team. He's bigger than you and he knows how it's all going to end. You know what I'm saying? So you have to have that, but then you got to try stuff. So the, the thing about Spider-Man, and I use him as an analogy because everyone knows who's kind of Spider-Man's power. You know, he has that spider sense where he could tell if a bad guy's coming behind him, but he also kind of like it's almost like a super reflexes and you can like react to things really well. So if you remember the old uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie, I think it came out in like 2002 or something like that. And he's got that scene where he like shoots a web and he's like, and the bad guy's getting away and he has to swing down this building. But the last time he tried this, he like slammed into a billboard, you know, <laughs> but now he's got to do it again. And the car is like going around the corner and, and he jumps and he's like, ah, you know, 
a lot of times people think Spider-Man's cool superpowers are that he sticks to walls, he's really strong, he can shoot webs, whatever. But his most important uh, superhero power, the thing that allows him to utilize all those other tools, those are, those are just tools that he uses, physical tools that he has. But his spider sense is the thing that allows him to use all those tools. So when he's swinging off that building and he's like, yikes, and then suddenly like spins a web to the, you know, slings a web to the side and spins around this building and he gets around it, right? Um, that's his most powerful weapon is his spider sense. Now think about this. Spider-Man wouldn't even know that he has a spider sense if he never put himself in trouble's way. He'd never feel it. He'd never know it if he never took a risk. And so many of us are so risk averse. We're so worried about taking care of ourselves that we won't put ourselves in harm's way. We won't take a risk. We won't push harder than we think we can go without any discomfort in life. And therefore, we never experience our proverbial spider sense. Each one of us has something really cool and unique to bring into this world. And I need you all to discover what your thing is because I can't freaking do this alone. You know what I'm saying? So any, anything that I've built, anyone that I've inspired, anything that I've ever helped by being a part of the reptile industry, the part you don't see on cute little podcasts and things like that is that it is a tremendous burden especially for somebody who waking up in the morning is the hardest part of their day. So they don't even want to be there. But by pushing myself farther than I think I can actually go, I found out that I'm actually quite capable of a lot. And it's put me into a lot of situations that have allowed me to have influence in the reptile industry or people's lives or, or whatever the case may be. And that's where a lot of the reward for me comes the reward of carrying that burden on a daily basis. So if you're struggling, it's pro it's not probably because like we always think, Oh, I'm struggling. I should be easier on myself. Nope. Get your ass up and work through it. You know what I mean? Go do some physical labor, go help somebody else. You know what I mean? Go empty your bank account and see what happens come Friday. One of those. It'll be terrifying and you will change your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do that one time. Why not drive, go to another country with a bag full of pants you know what I'm saying? Say, all I have left is a truck, so I'm going to get in it and drive. Okay. Push, do, do something that's not what you thought. If you don't like the way your life is going, it's probably because you suck at making decisions. Sorry to tell you. I know that's what it was for me. So don't listen to your wiser judgment. Do the opposite. The best example of this is that Seinfeld episode, you know, where um, George Costanza hates his life, and he, it's like he chooses the opposite. You guys, most of you guys listening are probably too young for this. You need to go look up this episode. It's so funny. But he's this, uh, this short, fat, bald character. He hates everything in his life, and he's just an absolute loser. And he goes, you know what? Every decision I've ever made is wrong, so I'm going to do the opposite. And the first thing that happens is the waitress comes up to him. They're sitting in the restaurant, and she's like, what do you take? He goes, the usual. And he's like, no, wait. He goes, what's the opposite of, like, turkey on cheese? He's like, I want a tuna casserole sandwich on gluten-free bread or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then across the restaurant, some hot chick hears his order and turns around and she goes, hey, come over here. And he's like, me? And, and, he, and she's like, yeah. And he looks over at Jerry Seinfeld. And he's like, I ain't going. That girl's intimidating. And he goes, wait, that's just what George Costanza would do. I am going <laughs> over there. You know what I mean? And so he goes over there and she's like, I just heard you order that sandwich and that's exactly what I get. 
such a unique thing. I figured I'd have to say hi. And so his instinct, his first instinct then is to lie to this girl to try to make himself look better because he's pathetic, you know, but instead he goes, my name is George Costanza. I'm overweight. I'm bald. I live with my mother and I'm 43 years old and unemployed. And she's like, I'm Carol or whatever, you know what I mean? And he starts dating this girl and he's like, what the heck? And by the end of the episode, I think he has his dream job and all this other stuff. It was a hilarious episode. Um, but he comes back to Jerry and he's like, this is my religion. Whatever I think I should do, I do the opposite. And I'll tell you that when I hated myself and I was going through all those struggles, every decision I, I made, I hated. So it really doesn't make sense to keep doing things the way you think you should or anyone else thinks you should. You kind of need a moment of desperation. You know, if anything, go force yourself to hit rock bottom to see which direction you go when you climb out. You know, go do something the opposite. Try it out. See how it goes. You know, and I, and I think if you say, God, you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, that seems pretty miserable. And for some reason, you think I'm worth it. That does not make any sense to me because Jesus was, from all accounts, pretty cool dude, and I'm a scumbag. I do not understand that. I do not understand it at all, but you probably know better than me, so let's go find out why I'm so cool. Jump off a building, figure out what your spider sense is. Not literally, guys, but you know what I'm talking about. So I love, I love yeah. how you intertwine all of it. That's that's my philosophy that's on life. This, is, this is my religion. You know? <laughs> Just go do something exceptional because normal is too boring. And I mean, who the heck wants to be a reptile breeder if you're normal anyway? I guarantee nobody on your podcast is normal. You guys are all a bunch of weirdos like me. You know, so just embrace the weird and, and go to town. It's a lot of fun, you know, and who knows? You do that hardcore as hard as you can for five years. I, I ended up here. Well, who knows where you'll end up, you know? So I think that is a uh, a great spot to kind of leave it. I, I promise, Duran, I would put a question out there real quick. So I'm going to put that out because I don't break promises. Uh-oh, um, Duran, that, too, that, 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 idea that troublemaker. Is, I know yeah, that guy. He's always doing <laughs> something. Um, how, do you, how do you find the strength not to spend all your money to doing all the things you want for the shop? Uh, Duran, you're coming at this from very much the wrong perspective. Yeah, I do <laughs> spend all my money doing all the things I want for my shop. And... and you probably texted that question in before you heard the last 10 minutes of my rant or whatever. But yes, go spend all your money and then figure out what happens. Maybe you'll lose the house. And that would be interesting, at least. It'd be one of the stories you could tell on a podcast someday. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I think people think because like we have a big or you know influential reptile business or that our snakes cost a lot, that Garrett must be rich or whatever. But I don't know. I'm sitting here in the basement of my grandparents house for fourth generation in this place. I have employees that make more money than I do because when I left my old job, all I did was match my salary. And I've done that ever since every dime that we've ever made, we've fully invested into the company because, you know, we wanted it to grow into something better. So you're buying this new house and you, I mean, this is going to be the place that you live. Duran, you've had a, a mixed past and, and you've gone through a lot of stuff. We've, I've had the pleasure of talking to you about some of that sometime, 
why not make something crazy for yourself? What is money going to do for you anyway? It comes, it goes. You really can't protect it. I mean, we all have had times where we're like, oh, I thought I had this money and now it's gone because of whatever, you know? So like when it's there, just burn it, have fun, trade that money for experiences, for a home, for cool stuff like that. I say push a little hard for a while, not knowing what's going to come next. And then wherever you end up, good or bad, you'll look back on it fondly. That's, that's what I say. I mean, that's very probably irresponsible advice and, and stuff like that, but that's, that's the way that I do it. And you know, life. That's what lawyers good. are for. You'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you, I don't, don't know. Go for disclaimer, it, buddy. Don't take this as financial advice. <laughs> take it as life <laughs> advice and learn from it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I do, I, I do spend all the money. I spend more than all the money and then I go, ah, I have to make more money. And that's where a lot of my creative solutions in life come from because I'm desperate because I spent too much of my money and I have to go make a bunch more. Well, so hopefully uh, spending all that money and putting the time and craziness and effort that you do makes people reach out to reach out reptiles. <laughs> I think it does. I think it does. I think people buy from people that, that they like, you know, like we can always go get something for 20 bucks cheaper somewhere. That's a little bit lesser quality. But if you, if you can get the best quality and have a good story and then be contributing to somebody who you know that's taking that money and converting that into more cool stories that you can be proud of because it's a part of the industry that you live in, if people start to look at spending that way, you know, they all would. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Brother, I appreciate all the knowledge, uh, the great stories tonight. Uh, I'm going to have to make my wife go back and watch this a couple of times because I don't know if you heard it, but <laughs> I definitely had a couple of squealing kids at some moments and I was just like, oh, that's a great part. I hope she heard. <laughs> so That's funny. Sure well, hey, man, thanks again, for having me on. It was great for, to finally catch up with you. And when you do come to Read to Fest, you're going to have to bring the wife at the kids, too, if you can make it. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, bring the whole out. plan up there, man. Yeah, we'll have some fun. That'll be good. So... Thanks so they again should for... know how to find you. I think I put I put everything but your Facebook, I think, down below. But for those that really want to get a hold of you, um, what's the easiest way to reach out to you at this time? Well, given given the way that this conversation has gone, if you guys have you know heard about me through here and you want to learn more, I'm going to just tell you one thing. On YouTube, there's a channel called The Reach. It's a smaller channel. We're like 2,000 subs right now. We just kind of started it. And um, that is our vlog channel. And it's a lot about, like, for example, the story with the water snake. We'll probably make it onto that channel at some point because I got video of it and stuff. So go there and subscribe to that channel. That would help me out a lot. We're, we're trying to build that one up so that we can uh, just kind of share some of the fun and, and the adventures. I like it. All right. Thanks, I hope you John. all enjoyed tonight with Garrett. I hope you learned something from it, whether it's business, whether it's uh, working to find a better, better self, spiritually, mentally, physically. Um, I think that's, that's kind of what drove me to both him and Cusco was just their mentality on that aspect over the years. Um, You're definitely week... going to have to go to Cusco if you want to better yourself physically. I, I haven't learned that one yet. I'm, I'm on the decline. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, man. Oh, his challenges get me, man. Uh, I I get so gun ho and I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Week one, I gave up. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it's getting there. So I, I did take that mentality. So this year I said, I'm going to get myself back into shape. Now, what type of shape? I don't know. Um, it took me until this month to really start going back to the gym and like actually looking at my diet and stuff like that. And now that I'm realizing all the crap I was putting in, I'm just like, been doing it for years. I need to freaking take care of myself. But I, Cause I want to be around for my kids, you know? And like, I, I watched my health go down really bad the last couple of years. So I'm trying to build back out of that. Not good. that, uh, that's here or there, but I'm all good. People don't have to worry about me. I'll find my <laughs> way out of it. I don't want people to worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, make sure you guys go to the reach. I'm going to go do that right after this. I don't think I put that one down below. So you're going to have to search that one. So I messed up. Um, <laughs> Garrett, thank you again. I can't wait to see you. If you do make it to Arlington, if you don't, I'll find a way to get some FaceTime this year. Hopefully, if not next year. Uh, love you, brother. Really appreciate it. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks, bro. Thank you. All right, y'all. I, like I said, I hope you enjoyed this. Next week, we have one of our local El Paso guys coming on podcast with us and that'll be pedro santana of santana serpents hope you enjoyed this and we'll talk to you all soon have a great weekend